When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined, as always, by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, he doesn't really care for the new card, the reality chip, because he prefers barbecue chips or maybe even Cool Ranch. It's Matt Morgan. Well, speaking of food, I noticed that good steak jokes are not very common, which means, uh, you know, when it's good, it's it's a rare medium that's well done. Yep, yep. I was going to say, oh, they must be pretty rare there. So, yay. Oh. I'm glad that I was on the same wavelength with you there, Matt. That's that's also very rare for me to understand what your I joke did, is going. I'm just glad I didn't butcher the joke. And my smile immediately fell. Now now we've overstayed our joke. Uh, quit quit but, trying uh, to start some beef over here. Well, just, just <laughs> introduce Dana. All right. Up next, he's not Phyrexian. He's completely fine. It's Dana Roach. Oh, what's a ninja's favorite fish? Uh, mm, running through all of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle jokes. St- a starfish. Oh, I figured it would have been a swordfish. That's a samurai's <laughs> favorite fish, Matt. Oh, okay. Big difference. I, I, Okay. My bad. I cherish you guys so much. This, <laughs> I, this is my favorite part of the week, actually. I, th- I think we just slaughtered all these jokes. Uh, so we're really. going to move on. Okay. This is the EDH <laughs> Recast. It really snuck guys. up on him. <laughs> EDHREC is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Matt, hopefully without introducing any other dad jokes here, what is it that we're talking about in this week's episode? Uh, well, this week we are going to challenge the strats, as it were. Um, so last week we challenged the stats. Um, so we're going to look at some strategies and maybe think... Uh, are there some commanders that could be doing better with a different strategy out there? Indeed. Yeah, this is a pretty fun one. We'll be talking about some different directions that you could be taking some of these commanders given their abilities. It should be a whole bunch of fun. Real quick, before we get into our main topic, let's pause and thank Josh LeQuay and the folks at the Command Zone for handling the post-production work on the podcast, making it look as spiffy as it does. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors for the show too. The EDH RecCast is sponsored by Card Kingdom and TCG Player, the ninja and samurai of online retailers. <laughs> Just head over to EDH Rec and choose the card in question. Uh, click on the vendor link down below, and doing that supports both the site and the show. And if you prefer to support the show directly, which I think is an A1 choice, <laughs> you can do so over at patreon.com slash EDHRecCast. We have patron tiers of all levels, whether you want to uh, join the Discord community, which if you don't, I think that's a big mistake. Uh, or you can look at all the historic challenge stats. You can even get some swag for yourself. All sorts of perks while supporting the show directly. Um, that's a prime choice right there. <laughs> so do so over at patreon.com slash EDH RecCast. And don't forget the special tier where we shout out somebody just for signing up. So this week, we want to give that very special shout out to Cedric Balton Steer. So Cedric, thank you so much. Um, I think you steered yourself in the right direction by going to our <laughs> Patreon page and uh, and support us. So thank you so much, Cedric, for all of the support. 
are dad jokes like poison counters? Like if we hit 10, <laughs> do I automatically lose this game? Because I'm pretty sure I already hit that limit, you guys. Um, it could be. They just accumulate over time. You can't actually get rid of them. Uh, they, there's there's <laughs> it, no it builds like, up leech. in your system like lead. Yes. Oh, my goodness. You guys are ridiculous. All right, let's recenter ourselves. Let's get to it. Let's, let's talk move about... on. Because cows I, go moo. You're, you're I, I bow down to your genius, Matt. That that <laughs> Joey has big. beef with both of us after all of this. So clearly, we're clearly move into it. We have a show. We have a show. We're gonna, I am determined to make the show happen. So yeah, we are talking about a, a little topic here: challenge the strats instead of challenge the stats, which which is kind of just a big version of challenge the stats, I guess you might say. Um, specifically, there are a bunch of commanders out there that, according to their EDH rec data, we see that there is a big strategy that a lot of players tend to use that. Can commander to do. And that is super fun for sure, but we wanted to put forth some other ideas of different strategies that you could use for those commanders instead. And real quick, this is like a big disclaimer. We're super not saying that these commanders are being built quote, wrong or anything like that. Like there is no wrong way to build a commander deck. These are like if you're choosing card choices for reasons like their art or their flavor, or if there's a specific tribe that you super like, that that's totally cool. That's an awesome reason to do it. But these are just some commanders where we saw their abilities and thought that maybe there's another direction that it might be fun to take those things into. So that is what we want to talk about today. Um, Matt, I hope that you enjoy challenging the strats, as it were. Uh, this, I think, is a uh, it seems like a topic that is especially personal to you. And Dana, based on the way that you build, I know it's definitely a <laughs> thing that you like to do as well. Um, but yeah, it should be yeah. a whole bunch of fun, I think. Yeah, I mean, definitely. We talk all the time about how what we see on the page may not necessarily be uh, something that is the most fun. It's just what people are defaulting to. And there's a lot of just real hidden gems of information out there. Uh, if you just take a little bit and look a little bit deeper, uh, you can find all sorts of awesome synergies that maybe people don't focus in on. Like I, I have said on this show a few times, there's there's more than just the, the traditional line of text for any given commander. So focusing on the, the forgotten text, um, you can open up some really cool possibilities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, very much. And, and I think also one of the things that we should probably say here too is that one of the inspirations for this specific episode is the situation that's probably going on right now with Cissé Weatherlight Captain. So Cissé Weatherlight Captain is that technically five-color commander, uh, the three mana from a Modern Horizon set. It's a 2-2, but it has a five-color activated ability that can go and search you out a bunch of legendary cards from your deck, which is really awesome. And it has become the default shrine commander. Like, 51% of players are playing Sanctum of All in that deck, for example. And the numbers are pretty much the same for a bunch of the other shrines that exist. And that is like super duper awesome. That is a great commander to use those shrine abilities. But now we have that new Go Shintai shrine commander that came out in Kamigawa Neon Dynasty as well. And that does kind of muddle things up a little bit for Sisei. Since there is now a competitor when it comes to shrines, what we kind of expect to happen here is that there could be another direction for players to take Sisei with it like Captain that isn't as shrine devoted. This no longer has to be the default or the de facto or the go-to shrine commander because there's another commander that is so explicitly wanting to do shrine stuff, that like Go Shintai commander. So that leaves Sisei open, a, available space to do something completely different. So that's what we want to talk about. Like, what are those other areas that you could explore instead? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, on one of our very earliest shows um, when we reviewed the Dominaria set, um, I remember myself specifically talking about Muldrotha and, and commenting on, you know, we already have Carador, we already have Marin. Does anybody really care about getting 
uh, one more variant on that commander. And of course, that's one of the most popular commanders of all time. So clearly, people <laughs> did care about getting just a slightly different version of that commander. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, that, that's that's definitely something to look at and talk about here because it's interesting to see what makes people choose that one commander over another one, and what makes one just be the thing that you know. To, to go back to last week's show, the the commander that chooses you, like why does that one choose you when there's something else that could easily have done the same role? Yeah, very very much, and especially like I think it's also worth noting that this is a transformation that we've already seen happen over the years when it comes to Karametra God of the Harvests, Karametra God of the Harvests of of course the Selesnia God, which whenever you would play creatures would go and find you lands. But since it was a god, it was an enchantment creature. And at the time that it first came out, back in, you know, Born of the Gods or whatever set that was, there were so few options for a Selesnia Enchantress commander. So Karametra kind of became the Enchantress commander for green and white. But over time, as new options came out, especially with stuff like Tuvasa, Estrid, and then certainly a nail in the coffin was definitely Sithis, the Harvest's Hand. Like, this has been eventually a thing that moved away for Karametra's data. And over time, it just became a green-white landfall deck instead of being a green-white Enchantress deck because there were other options to it. And that freed up space for this commander to more popularly find a completely different identity. And I suppose at this point, it's time that, you know, since we're talking about Selesnia stuff, Matt, I'm going to pass this baton over to you because this is an example that I know you are hugely, hugely an advocate for when it comes to Miri Weatherlight Duelist and the most popular ways that her deck is usually built and the ways that you feel about how it could be built instead. Well, I mean, I was going to take an episode off from talking about Selesnia, <laughs> but if you're giving me this platform, then I, I guess I got to step up. So, um, but yeah, no, Mary Weatherlight Duelist is just, it's such a fantastic commander. And you see this a lot with pre-constructed deck commanders anyways, where they're either the face commander or a backup commander in some of these pre-constructed decks where people are just kind of seeing what is in the pre-con deck with it. And a lot of those stats just kind of echo that. And so people don't really diverge very far from any given strategy unless it's very, very blatantly obvious. But you'll always see some tinges of, of some of those cards that are staying you know, over in the new decks, even though they necessarily sh or shouldn't necessarily be there. Um, I took my Miri Weatherlight Duelist deck from the Cat Tribal deck that it was with a pre-con deck and turned it into just... Selesnia, go wide, go hard type of deck. And it, it works fantastically because the abilities on the card, they don't do anything for cat decks, <laughs> or at least cat specific decks, but they do like turning things sideways and making the combat step really hard to navigate for your opponents. And so that's kind of a really good example, I think, for this type of episode where we see the, the, the data, but is there a strategy maybe that the commander could lean into a little bit differently or maybe also could lean into uh, that people just aren't really looking at. Yeah, like Miri has that amazing ability. Whenever it's attacking, each opponent can't block with more than one creature this combat. And it happens to be a cat, it's true. And when we first found this card, it, when it came out, it was in a cat tribal deck, so it's surrounded by a bunch of cats. And all over its EDHREC data page, we still see a bunch of other cat tribal cards, a bunch of, you know, things like Kasali Slingers, for example. And these aren't bad directions to take with it. Like you can certainly build a regular cat tribal deck and you've got a cat commander, that certainly works. But Matt, the things that you've done instead with that deck are focus on other stuff that just makes combat way more tricky, like a Pathbreaker Ibex, for example, which when it attacks along with Miri, it's pumping up your entire board full of tokens and your opponents cannot block all of the stuff that you've pumped up. They can only block with one creature. So you're dealing almost immediately lethal damage. Or here's another one, another favorite from uh, the stuff that we've played against with you, Nakatal Warpride, which ironically is a cat, but that is a cat that duplicates itself for each blocker that your opponent has. And 
that's nice and all, but Miri's like, yeah, but you can't block all of these tokens. So you're just going to be hit by a bunch of extra tokens if your board is trying to be as big as my board. And those are just super funny things that you can do with this deck that you don't have to be married to the cat tribal because the commander's abilities are completely different. Like, I totally think that if we had just gotten Miri Weatherlight Duelist released not in a cat tribal precon, but just released in a Dominaria set, for example, that her data would look completely different than what we see on her page today. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, cards like Orin Frostfang, where you don't want your opponents to be able to block, <laughs> they benefit a huge amount from Miri's ability of of, of only letting people block with one creature. So having a lot of cards that, that are benefiting from that, yeah, they're, they're not necessarily cats. Yes, like you said, Joy, there are certainly cats that that like Miri's ability, but also like there's there's just such a huge door that opens. It's kind of the reverse of what we were talking about uh, a couple weeks ago where uh, you have to look beyond the immediate ability. And we're kind of doing that here too, except with strategies, not just with cards. It, it gets tricky too to, to do this. You know, Joey mentioned earlier, the fact that there isn't a wrong way necessarily to, to do a thing. We're not saying that that this one particular brew is is the correct path. Right. Um, but sometimes we're kind of asked that too. Like <laughs> well, when we're doing a review, people kind of want a hard and fast opinion about whether or not, um, you know, Commander A is better than Commander B for doing this thing. So that, that's where things do get kind of difficult sometimes. I, I, I totally agree there isn't necessarily a better path path. Miri isn't necessarily wrong as your cat tribal commander, um, but it's one of those things like on an evaluation axis, there's probably better ways to do that. Yeah. It, <laughs> it's or, or more effective or like, you know, more likely to lead to a win, however you want to word that. So it gets right. to be, it, there, there is a challenge there sometimes to how you want to phrase this, this kind of discussion for sure. Very, very much. I think one of the most important and honestly, one of the coolest lessons that you can learn when playing EDH is very much this not viewing things through a strictly better lens, but also not viewing cards just through a, is this a good card lens? Like there isn't a good card and a bad card. Mm -hmm. There's like the, the question to ask isn't, is this a good card? It's, is this a good card in this specific deck? And that's such a, a big level up moment is how it feels to me. And, and it's funny for us to linger on Miri, which Matt, you have cited across the years as a really favorite example of this exact type of thing, where a direction that commonly shows up on her page is not the direction that you would take it. And uh, the direction that you would take it, you feel is a bit more potent given her actual printed abilities. But mm -hmm. it's kind of funny because I think this same thing is kind of true for Arabo as well. Like this is a very confused uh, precon when it comes to the data that we're still seeing on EDH rec for it because Arabo, you see quite a lot of equipment stuff still on Arabo's page with like Behemoth Sledge or Locks It on Warhammer, that kind of thing, because the precon came with a uh, equipment sub theme because the card Nazan also came in that precon and he's an equipment cat commander. So he's a lot more Voltron, but you still see little echoes of that. There are some of the Leonins and stuff that care about having equipment in the deck. But when you actually pull the average deck data for Arabo, there end up only being like five, maybe six equipment in the deck total. And so having all of those cats that care about equipment, you don't have a lot of actual targets in it. So that also kind of strikes me as a bit of a confused area for the, not just Miri, but also for Arabo, where I think that the equipment might be kind of, I don't know, I think it can resist the yoke of the precon. It doesn't need to keep on going back to the way that the precon was constructed. And Arabo can focus a lot more on something else that isn't as equipment focused instead. And he can sort of shore up his own type of identity too. So it's just funny for me that both of those cat commanders have a weird identity crisis that's kind of going on on their page that could be fleshed out in completely different ways if you wanted to do so. I mean, I think you could say that about a lot of the the pre-constructed decks from back in that era too. Yeah. Uh, they, they tried giving equal treatment to every single commander in there, and that just wasn't 
leading to very cohesive decks. They've streamlined quite a bit more, or at least made maybe the, the, the backup commanders have a little bit more in common so they can make a cohesive deck out of the box. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that probably applies to a lot more than just the specific cat tribal pre-constructed deck that we had back then. Uh, I think that applied to a lot more. It's just this is a really good example to, to kind of showcase the point we're trying to make for this episode. So an- another good one that jumps to mind here that we can talk about is um, Liesa Shroud of Dusk. Mm. She's the um, five mana, five, five angel in Orzhov colors. And rather than pay two for each previous time you've cast a spell from the commands on this game, uh, pay two life that many times. And she has flying in the lifelink. And whenever a player casts a spell, they lose two life. Currently, this tends to get built as a life gain commander, but it, it could be Voltron. You see it is as an angel tribal commander for people that want to build black, white angels. Um, it's always five mana, which is nice. It has amazing keywords, which is really, really nice. And the bigger its power gets, the more you can stay ahead of her life loss. And it's easy to then keep recasting or people remove her. Um, Voltron Punisher, though, could be the way to go here, too. Um, you know, there are plenty of cards out there, particularly if you have access to black, like this commander does, that just deal damage to everyone simultaneously. Um, cards like Ankh of Mishra just hurts people. Um, Painful Quandary is wow. ridiculous for hitting everyone. Um, even, you know, Pestilence style effects, like you can just deal damage to the entire board simultaneously and you have ways right there in the command zone to get it back. And if one of those effects kills your commander, it, it's again, very easy to recast her just by paying some life. I super love that. Yeah. I mean, most of the things that we see on this commander's page tend to be super life gain. You've got your sanguine bonds and your authority, of the consoles showing up in like over 50%, 60% of Liesa decks. But it could just be like, instead of focusing on life gain, you could just focus on the punishment tax, uh, axis of this commander instead. And um, that will, I'm actually, I guess, kind of personally surprised not to see more of that influence in her deck data because it seems like such a vicious effect. The, the life gain stuff does help you stay ahead of her own ability, but it's interesting that the, the major direction that we see for this commander tends to be a lot more focused on increasing your own life total as opposed to sort of digging your heel into your opponent's life totals, which is a totally different strategy to go with and could be possibly more powerful given how punishing she is and how difficult it is to keep her off of the field since she's constantly just going to stay immune to the commander tax. Well, and it's always interesting, too, seeing all these themes that they show up on the page, but they're so far down on the, those commander pages. But you get hints of them here and there, so you can kind of see what else people are doing. And that's also why, just to point to the site, it's always super, super helpful when you're looking at a commander's page. Find one of the themes on that commander page and click on that so you can really dive down into what it is so you're not seeing a jumbled amount of information. There, There's filters all aboard. Like We've said many times, advanced filters is one of our mm. favorite tools on the page. So using the advanced filters page to be able to filter out all of the information that's not necessarily helpful to the type of strategy you're looking to do, that's going to really help you see some of those hidden gems that I personally love the website for. So you're able to take out all the the life gain things, all the different battling strategies, and really just dial down. Uh, that's one of my favorite tools about the website. So just being able to use advanced filters, that's really going to help quite a bit when it comes to fighting some of these combating strategies and and picking one with a lot of these commanders that we're talking about. Preach, preach, preach. The advanced filters make the site, in my opinion. Uh, In fact, when I did a guest appearance on uh, Commander Advisor Group member Shivan Butt's podcast, uh, the Casual Magic podcast, I actually mentioned advanced filters to him on that show. And you can hear Shivam have 
a, a verbal breakdown, and he, like a mental explosion. He's like, well, you are blowing my mind, dude, because he'd never used these before. And they are so helpful. And you can filter stuff out. You can filter stuff in that you definitely want to find or that you definitely don't want to see. They are huge. It is a, if you haven't used them before, folks, they are a life-changing way to use the site. And Lingus is a really great example for that because there are a lot of different ways you could go with that ability, whether you are pumping yourself up, whether you want her to be as large as possible so that you get the most out of her lifelink, or whether you just want to make your opponents hurt for playing any type of spell and not just with her own ability. It's pretty darn fun. Um, moving from that color combination to a personal favorite color combination, this is an example I think I've mentioned on the show before, and it's kind of my equivalent of Matt's Miri example. Let's talk about the Mimeoplasm. He is the Sultai Ooze that when he, uh, when you play him as he enters the battlefield, you will exile two creature cards from graveyards, and he'll become a copy of one of those creatures with extra power, extra plus one counters equal to the power of the other creature that you exiled. This is my oldest living deck. I love him, but the data has been fascinating to see over time with the Mimeoplasm because he was at one point a great graveyard-based commander where you would just make funny combinations. But then a hunger grew amongst the community to find an ooze tribal commander. And so a lot of Mimeoplasm's uh, deck data these days is crowded out by a whole bunch of different oozes. You're consuming blobs of the world, your bio-waste blobs of the world. And what I think is so weird about that is just that, you know, if you want to build ooze tribal and this feels like the de facto commander to do it, totally get why. But I do think that it's not the most interesting to me uh, way to build this commander because it's a whole lot more fun to like have him become like a copy of Tanazir Quandrix and then double all of the counters that you got from your Titanoth Rex or something like that. Or for him to become a walking ballista and he gets plus one counters on him equal to a Lord of Extinction. Like those are so wacky and weird to me. And so I would love to just encourage that because I think it is a very interesting way to build this commander. And it's not as interesting to me to, you know, use a bunch of oozes where the Mimiplasm as a zero zero is then copying zero zeros and becoming a zero zero with zero plus one counters. I don't know. It's just not as interesting to me, but I am also totally going to admit a whole lot of bias here because it is my favorite deck. Yeah, see, I, I come out of the other direction. I, I get what you're saying about how it's maybe not the most effective <laughs> Ooze Tribal Commander, um, but I would much rather see an Ooze Tribal deck than I would seeing somebody oh. make a Walking <laughs> Blista and use the Lord of Extinction. Like that, that to me seems much. That that seems very boring. How like it seems that seems like a super obvious way to play that deck where you're like, what's the most broken thing I can do? I'm going to do that thing. That at least to me personally is less interesting than a bunch of goofy Oozes. Oh, I I can't believe you, Dana. When I, I mean like. You know, I'm not saying you're wrong either. I'm just like this is this is a like in terms of what I think is an interesting thing to play against. It would be, I would much rather see somebody beat me with oozes than I would with a, a huge walking ballista. Well, I'm just I'm just saying it doesn't have to be walking ballista. I can have <laughs> the Mimeoplasm become a copy of Ukima. Um, and then get a bunch of extra plus one counters off of an Apocalypse Demon. Sure. Or I can have it become a Joda's Avenger, which can give itself double strike and shadow. And I just think that it actually affords me an opportunity to find these cards that people kind of don't usually give the time of day. And I think that's really hysterical. Sure. I mean, that's why, Dana, you could go to the Advanced Filters page and look <laughs> at all the decks that don't include Walking Ballista. Um, we're coming full circle here. Good point. I, I would, yeah, good point, I mean, Matt. I guess we could hoof it onto the next commander, though. <laughs> <laughs> then let's. What's next? <laughs> so hoofing it into a commander that I like, Atesa Karlov is a commander that I have. I have a Atesa Karlov deck, and I always forget, even when I have Atesa Karlov in play, I forget about the second line of text on Atesa, which is creature tokens you control have vigilance and lifelink. It's a fantastic <laughs> ability. Like, that's so great. But I forget it's there. 
Uh, everybody, <laughs> and if you look at the typical Tasa Karlov page, people also do. Everybody loves that first ability, and not that they're wrong because that first ability is is absolutely great. Uh, where a permanent or a creature dying causing a, a triggered ability of a permanent you control to trigger, it triggers a second time. That's fantastic. The, the the death harmonicon effect, if you will. But giving all of your tokens vigilance and lifelink, that is a crazy powerful interaction that you just don't see on Taste of Karlov's page at all. If you look at the top cards, there's stuff like Grim Harris specs, there's Pitiless Plunderer, mm -hmm. and there's just a lot of aristocrats type of effects. But if you, like, token decks are not weak by any means. It's one of the most popular themes on the EDH rec page. And there are ways to pump out a ton of tokens, whether you're putting them out through stuff like Divine Visitation or any stuff like that. You have the ability to make a bunch of tokens, but you just don't see that happening very often on the page unless you start really digging into it. So I think that Tasa Karlov, and there's another Commander Joy that I know you really like in the same vein, where it could be used towards tokens, but just it's not. Oh, so yeah, this one's especially a bit more conflicted almost. Like, it is used towards tokens, but it is used towards tokens for an aristocratic purpose when you look over most of the deck data. So the one you're referring to there is a deck that I've built, which is Thalese Reverent Medium. Um, this was actually EDHREX preview card for Commander Legends. It is a super, super fun commander. Um, like, I, I would have built this commander even if it wasn't a preview card. It's so good. Five mana, three, four, human cleric. At the beginning of each end step, you create X, one, one, white spirit creature tokens with flying, where X is the number of tokens you created this turn. And Matt, you're totally right that even though ostensibly this is a commander that cares about making tokens, it will kind of double up the number of tokens that you make. Most typically, the stuff that you see that those tokens are used for when you investigate the lease EDHREC data is for aristocrats' purposes, such as Zulaport Cutthroat or Cruel Celebrant. There are a bunch, I mean a bunch of other death trigger things happening on Thalisa's page because she makes a whole bunch of bodies and then you'd be able to get a bunch of sacrificable things to use for Zulaport Cutthroat to drain your opponent's life totals, which totally makes sense. But having built this commander, I have personally found that my power output is kind of a bit more exciting sometimes when I just focus on the tokens, on pumping them up with like a Cathars Crusade, for instance, or using Gisal Goldmane to give a board full of 10 tokens plus 10 plus 10. And that's a really exciting version of the damage output for me. So it's interesting to see how much these two commanders really have a whole lot in common. A lot of the Orzov instinct seems to be very aristocratic, but you can focus on just the token parts of these if you want to. And like when it comes to the examples uh, for the Tesa deck that, that you love, Matt, for example, like a cool thing that you could do there if you really wanted to lean into the tokens all having vigilance and lifelink, put like an Archangel of Thune in there, for example. Whenever you gain life, you'd put a plus one counter onto each of those tokens. They each individually had lifelink, so you'll gain a bunch of life and pump up your tokens to be a whole bunch. Like uh, that would just be a smashing deck. I think it's very interesting. You can move a little bit away from the aristocrat stuff if you want to just focus on just a regular good old-fashioned combat step. These are really exciting commanders to do that. So Joey, you just made music to my ears saying you should just enjoy <laughs> the combat step. Um, but yeah, you are absolutely correct. There, there are so many ways to go big and go wide with these and just gain so much life. Like you can very easily make a life gain deck just by making creature tokens and then just attacking, throwing them to the wayside. Uh, you may have those creatures die, which will get the, the taste of Karlov ability, but you're gaining us so much life. 
Right. You, yeah, you could focus on it being a life gain deck with Tesa as well if you wanted to because of how potent that ability is. And I mean, it's practically trinket text on that effect. Like you said, you constantly forget that that other ability of the lifelink and vigilance is there on Tesa. But like, that's also really powerful. That's like, that's really, really good. And so it's just an interesting lesson here. I think about paying attention to all of the words that are on a commander to see other ways that you could be taking advantage of its abilities. And also when it comes to Thalese, not just focusing on the ability as a means to a different end, but focusing on that ability as the end itself. Well, I mean, if you want to talk about that, then Dana's Veil of the Nightclad deck is exactly that. Uh, yeah. we, we, you focus on the, the fear part where, it, Dana, you make all of your artifact creatures dang near unblockable, but all of a sudden then you sacrifice them all and just people die. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, like, there's text that... Yeah, it's a, it's an easy bit of text to ignore on that card for Absolutely, sure. Absolutely, yeah. It, it's it, I've been wrecked many times by it. No, I, I think Vela is another great example uh, just for this exact category, actually. And uh, this is sort of what I was alluding to, Dana, with like, I know this is a way that you really love to build, is a way that not everyone else is usually doing. Um, but Vela is usually built, according to her EDH rec page, there's a bunch of colorless Aldrazi on her deck. Uh, in, in on her deck page, I mean. And like you have gone with an artifact deck build instead because those are also colorless creatures that would take advantage of the colorless unblockability effect that Vela provides. So that right there is a huge difference and it's really rewarding in, when you play that deck. Well, and I think once upon a time, she was a ninja commander. So like, that's a <laughs> that's commander right. that's, that's seen, you know, not only am I not playing it the, the way it gets played now, but it was played way differently even originally because that was, I think, came in the original Plane Chase ninja deck and until we actually got a ninja commander, that was kind of the, the the default everyone used for that deck, I think. I think you're right, yeah. And it's a, a, a wild set of abilities, a really cool bunch of stuff there. So yeah, paying attention to all of the words there and seeing what is the means to the end and what is the end itself, that's definitely a really big lesson. Um, we've got a couple of other examples that'll be exciting to get to, but let's save those for the back half of the show because it's been far too long since we did a good old-fashioned challenge the stats instead of challenging the strats. Uh, this is just one of our favorite segments ever on this podcast. And there's, you know, there's just so much data on EDH track, but we don't always agree with it because sometimes cards see too much or too little play. So uh, Dana, I'll pass this off to you. What's your challenge for us this week? Um, my challenge this week was submitted by patron supporter Flavor Police. <laughs> okay. And um, their challenge is indulging patrician in Doran the Siege Tower decks. Um, Indulging Patrician is three mana, one, a black and a white for a vampire noble with flying and lifelink. It's a one four. And at the beginning of your end step, if you gained three or more life this turn, each opponent loses three life. So because of the way Doran works, where you actually, your, your creatures deal damage equal to their toughness, this winds up being a four life hit. And then because of the extra text on here that says, at the beginning of your end step, if you gain three or more life this turn, each opponent loses three life. Well, it, it triggers itself. So it winds up being a three-mana creature with evasion that gains you some life. And it's a seven-point swing on each opponent. It, it's, it's hitting each opponent functionally for seven damage per turn while gaining you life. That's a really, really nice piece of tech in, in that Dora deck. That's a really efficient creature you can drop. And it definitely should be in more than the zero oh. <laughs> Doran the Siege Tower decks right now on EDH Rack. Wait, wait, Dana, I know that you've always been trying, like, your your mission has always been to find, like, the cards that show up in the least amount. But, like, did did, did Flavor Police, did our, our patron support None. just win? <laughs> None decks, uh, yeah. 
So that, that's, a, that's a real solid inclusion. I like it a lot for that deck. Yeah, the the zero. What a champ. That's that's a great pick. But yeah, wow, that does sound really, really potent. I'm loving that. Um, I'm going to move to my challenge now. And mine is for Eruth the Tormented Prophet decks, which is the Izzet Commander from Crimson Vow. It is three mana, two, four, legendary creature, human wizard that says, if you would draw a card, exile the top two cards of your library instead, and you may play those cards this turn. And so my challenge here is actually inspired by one Jeremy Knoll, who y'all might know from Commander Versus, and he's pointed out a very clever thing here about what's going on with Eruth's data, specifically a card that is seeing too much play on Eruth's page, and that's Harmonic Prodigy, a two mana human wizard, one, three, with prowess, but also the main important thing here is that it says, if an ability of a shaman or another wizard you control triggers, it happens an additional time. 24% of Eruth decks so far are playing Harmonic Prodigy, and according to Jeremy Noel, and I agree with his assessment here, this is too high because it looks like what people want to do is to use Harmonic Prodigy to double up the ability of Eruth, but Eruth's ability to give you the impulse card draw instead of regular card draw, that's not a triggered ability that Harmonic Prodigy would double. That's a replacement effect that Harmonic Prodigy wouldn't do anything to at all. And so unfortunately, looking over the data, seeing that there aren't a lot of other shamans or wizards on Eruth's page at all, it really does seem like Harmonic Prodigy is an inclusion based on a rules misunderstanding. So you probably shouldn't play it in that deck because it won't do anything with Eruth. And instead you can focus on other impulse fun card draw effects that that commander will absolutely just give you a bunch of card advantage for instead. And you don't need the Prodigy to help you out with it. Well, well Joey, I want to take a stab at this uh, at this challenge of stats thing. So I'm going to cut right, <laughs> cut right to the chase. Uh, so right. one card that I think think folks are not really giving enough consideration to is taking a page from 60 card formats. So Opt used to be a card in Spellcaster decks, Spellslinger type of decks that you'll see on the Spellslinger theme page. And Opt is a great card. It's it's totally fine. It's just one blue for an instant, scry one and then draw a card. Uh, it's just quick and efficient. It's pretty great. But 60 card formats have stopped playing Opt, and that, that's saying a lot because every single blue deck was playing four Opt for a long, long time, whether it was Standard, Modern, Pioneer, all that. One card that they've moved over to that I think a lot of people need to give some consideration to is the card Consider. Uh, so Opt is being played currently in 48% of Spellslinger decks, and I think that number should be what Consider is getting played at. So Consider is one blue for an instant that says, look at the top card of your library, you may put that card into your graveyard. So basically, you surveil, but it doesn't actually give you the keyword, and then you draw a card. So Commander is all about resource accumulation, and if you're Joey, the graveyard is very much a resource for you. Mm -hmm. So having cards in the graveyard as opposed to on the bottom of your library where you don't necessarily have access to it anymore is something that I think a lot of players can benefit from. Uh, being able to put cards in your graveyard where you can cast them with a big Mizzix's Mastery, uh, if you want cards in your graveyard, there's all sorts of benefits to having cards in the graveyard as opposed to on the bottom of your library. Mm. You're still getting a, a, a cast trigger. You're still getting an instant speed, do something to draw a card. There's a lot of benefits from this. And I think this is just one of those small upgrades. I mean, I know that I've challenged like four out of five weeks. It's been a random common from a, <laughs> a, a different set, but that's where you get a lot of these valuable little upgrades. And so I think if you're playing Spellslinger decks, you you're all about building up to one big turn. So having a bunch of instances or instance in the deck doesn't necessarily help you. There are great sorcery speed uh, cantrips to help you have that big turn, whether it's ponder, preordain, any of that. But if you need a few instant speed options, I think you should definitely consider putting consider oh, okay. in the deck. <laughs> 
Oh, I can't even be mad at that. That's 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 perfect. And Matt, as much as I was praising moving into the combat step, I love that you're praising more graveyard utility. I I I know when I can just give some credence to what it is. Um, <laughs> you're doing a good job, Joey. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a really good observation. Those cantrips can be really good, but the ones that put resources in places where you can access them later, it's also really really spicy. Not gonna yep. lie. Yeah, c- consider isn't even on spellslinger like the theme page right now. And so I think, mm-hmm. especially since Opt is being played in as much as it is, um, I think you just need to make that swap. Mm, I like it. I like it. Okay, guys, let's get back into our main topic here. And, uh, you know, Matt, I might actually pass this next one off to you. We um, we both kind of agreed about this idea for Peer and Toothy, which are very famous Simic commanders that care about counters. And the thing that you usually see on their page is a bunch of plus one counters, but what's something else that you could do with Peer and Toothy instead? I mean, beyond plus one, plus one counters, like there's a world of different counters out there now, whether it's indestructible counters, whether it's (laughs) uh, hexproof counters, but also like Planeswalkers also get loyalty counters. Uh, You and I have talked a few times why, you know, being kind of surprised that why aren't there more Planeswalker? Why aren't there more super friends because Simic Colors get a lot of Planeswalkers, and so being able to double them up and get to your ultimate abilities that much quicker, that just seems, I mean, not quite irresponsible. I won't go that far against <laughs> the people, but uh, it seems like you're missing on a, a really good opportunity to go outside the box and play some pretty potent strategies. And specifically here, the thing to point out is that Peer's ability actually works with those loyalty counters in a way that not a lot of those effects that we usually see will do. Peer says, if one or more counters would be put onto a permanent your team controls, that many plus one of each of those kinds of counters are put onto that permanent instead. And this is appreciably different from an effect like Doubling Season, which only cares about effects putting counters onto your Planeswalkers. Peer will actually power up your Planeswalkers by an additional loyalty every time you use their uh, their loyalty abilities, which are usually considered a cost, not an effect. Peer doesn't care. Peer is still going to put extra counters onto your planeswalkers, so you'll be able to ult them like a full turn faster. Like Ugin the Spirit Dragon, for example. After a single turn, he is ready to use his ultimate ability. That's fire! That's so good! And there are a whole bunch of other super friends you could use for this deck, and so you don't have to focus on the plus one counters that most folks do with Peer and Toothy. You could just make it Simic Super Friends. And you're also in Colors of Access doubling season anyway. <laughs> so, so like you just have almost all the tools green and blue are known for proliferate effects as well um you just have everything there at your disposal to do <laughs> busted super friend stuff and yeah i i also agree it's it's kind of i'm surprised you don't see that route taken way more frequently you are not wrong i suppose that is yeah <laughs> that's really funny but yeah like teferi master of time he's the one who you can activate on every single turn and he'll get like two counters every single turn instead of just a plus one. Uh, Nissa Vital Force would enter and be able to ult right away because she ults at six, but she enters with five and Peer would make it six counters lo- for loyalty there anyway. Or here, here's another really weird one. Jace the Living Guild Pact. That is not a good Planeswalker. It's really not a great Planeswalker. No, no, it's not. It, it's super not. I don't even need to read the ability. It's not very good. But it, importantly, if you have Peer in play, when you play Jace the Living Guild Pact, he's ready to ult on the very next turn. And the ultimate, if you can use it, is 
is actually kind of decent. So like that is a bad card that would actually be very good for a Simic Super Friends strategy. And so, I, yeah, I would love to see more Planeswalkers show up on these Simic uh, Commanders page because they're really, really potent in a way that I don't think most people expect the tempo to be that powerful. In addition to doubling season, I'll also mention Deep Close Skate is in these colors, which is a <laughs> creature where you can, when an ETBs double the amount of uh, counters on a number of target permanents. So you just double the Planeswalker counters. Yeah, you could just do all kinds of crazy things here. Uh, since we're talking about things with blue in the color identity, let's let's go over to Linvala Shield of Seagate. Mm. Um, Linvala is not a very good card, I don't think, in, in Commander. Oh, what? Um, at least this this Linvala isn't, generally speaking. Um, I, I, I think as written, she's a commander that says, at the beginning of combat on your turn, if you have a full party, choose target non-land permanent and opponent controls until your next turn it can't attack or block and its abilities can't be activated. Um, so by default, people tended to read that as a commander that you ran if you were using a party mechanic from from back in that Zendikar block, which most people didn't, I don't think. There was no one really clamoring for a party commander. Um, <laughs> however, there's also additional text on this card. Uh, it says, sacrifice Linvala and choose Hexproof or Indestructible, and creatures you control gain that ability until end of turn. Again, I think people tended to read that as just a bonus thing you could do with the party deck you built. Um, but I want to give a shout out here to to friend of the show, Lenny Woolley of Scrap Trawlers. He's also one of the EDH Rec writers. Um, he's got a really good Linvala deck, which is surprising because I think she is generally a fairly boring commander, like I said. <laughs> um, but he's really kind of focused on that last ability and it just treats her like an Azorius heroic intervention in the command zone. He can just use her to save the rest of his team whenever necessary and has ways to recur her to reuse that ability, things like Gift of Immortality, so, so she's readily available to save the rest of his team. Um, and the party stuff really doesn't matter. Like He's not focusing on that at all. He's just <laughs> running good cards in those colors, and she's a way to protect them. Um, that's a really, really good use of a creature that otherwise I don't think is very interesting in the command zone. He found a way to just focus on that last line of text and build against kind of what the card is suggesting and kind of treat her as a instant spell out of the command zone. That's really clever and it's made for a very good deck. So that's one I definitely wanted to shout out as a way to, to, to find an interesting build path with a commander that doesn't seem to be suggesting that to you at all. Well, you, you, yeah. look, at, you look at a card like Selfless Spirit, which is close to the same thing as Linvala, not quite. But Selfless Spirit, you know, you're able to sacrifice it and give the creatures that you control indestructible until in a turn. That's played in over 16,000 decks. Mm -hmm. So being able to put that type of effect only better into the command zone, I think that's kind of a no-brainer if you're trying to play yep. that type of color and, and you want to be a board-dependent type of deck. So that's a really good call. Yeah, people forgot that you know, Linvala has that activated ability that you can just replay over and over again. Yeah, on her EDHREC page, what you see are cards like Spoils of Adventure, which cares about you having a party, which is again that Zendikar mechanic that cares about having like a rogue and a warrior and a wizard or something like that. Uh, there's Squad Commander, there's Nimble Trap Finder, again, cards that care about the party mechanic. And it's just like, 
feel free to just ignore that. You can just put Gift of Immortality on Linvala and your team will basically never be able to die because anytime you sacrifice Linvala, Gift of Immortality will bring her right back and put itself right back onto her and then you can sacrifice all over again. And so you're right, Lenny just uses a bunch of big avisons, a whole bunch of other angels and stuff that will just constantly smash face and it's hard to use a wrath effect against them because constant hexproof whenever you need it, constant indestructible whenever you need it. Like this is one of the only times this commander specifically where I'll say that Sun Titan is an MVP because Linvala is a three mana commander that Sun Titan would get right back so that you can continu continuously give your board indestructible at a moment's notice. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm not huge on Sun Titan. I think it's a little bit overrated. I think it's a lot of bit overrated. <laughs> you were taking me back to 2012 by saying Sun Titan is an MVP. Um, I think that's the last time somebody said those words. So uh, yeah, that's that's a callback. But but in this deck, it's actually, it's savagely good because Lavala is. is that good at protecting your board. Or Bishop of Rebirth is another really great option. And these are things that we do see creeping in on Linvala's, you know, what minimal data we have for her because there's less than 200 decks for Linvala. But it's a very potent effect that is, like the actual best part of Linvala is being buried by the other text that is on her card, all of the party mechanic stuff, which does make it look like it's not that interesting. But the effect is actually really potent. I've used Linvala in, I have an Esper deck that I'm running her in and it's super, super cool. I definitely like this card. But as a commander, yeah, it's really, really awesome at protecting a big board full of huge sphinxes and angels and stuff like that. So kudos to Lenny, kudos to this pick. It's a very savage effect. And I guess the lesson for this one is to ignore some of the words, which is the opposite lesson <laughs> that we just had when we were talking about right. Tesa. But, but like, yeah, you can ignore the party mechanic here because that's not the interesting part of this card at all. So one that I'm actually kind of surprised hasn't caught on a little bit more, uh, mainly because commander players love flipping over. They love a little bit of randomness, a little bit of just like, oh man, can you believe that just happened? Uh, that This <laughs> seems like could encourage that. Uh, is Aluna Apex of Wishes decks? So a lot of players, if you look at the page, they're just treating like a typical mutate deck. There's there's all sorts of gem razor and migratory great horn type of cards where, yeah, you want to be mutating onto these things and you want to... Uh, get those types of effects from whenever this creature mutates do the thing. Uh, one thing that actually, though, that I'm surprised hasn't caught on a little bit is making some little throwaway type of creature, like a colony garden type of token. Uh, yeah, you play a land, you get the token, and then mutate onto that, and then just polymorph. That's a, that's a thing, right? <laughs> polymorph is a spell where you just get to flip into some big, massive creature because the only big, massive creatures you're playing are these things that are just insanely crazy powerful worth cheating into play like uh, a blightsteel colossus or uh, oh, i don't you know, know. Eldra eldrazi are popular right those are big and powerful <laughs> flip into an eldrazi why not oh yeah that's so perfect because aluna's effect when it mutates onto something which you could do right from the command zone it would have that polymorph effect find a non-land permanent card and put it right onto the onto the battlefield <laughs> so you could build the whole deck as just like the only creatures the only non-land permanents are, you know, Emrakuls and Kozileks and Blightsteels. Uh, and you've got a Polymorph deck right there waiting for you. Matt, I love this. Yeah, the, the ability of being able to flip until you hit a non-land permanent means uh, you can just crank through if you're only playing spells, lands, and then creatures, or I should say permanents, that you want to flip into. Uh, if you get a free Omniscience, why not? <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't even think of that. It's any non-land permanent? 
It's not just creatures. It is uh, exile cards from the top of your library until you exile a non-land permanent card and you put that card onto the battlefield or into your hand. If you want to put it into your <laughs> hand, you could. I don't know why you would want to, but you could. You have that option. Oh, dude, I'm having a you're blowing your my mind moment here because, yeah, you could. This is a polymorph deck that you could flip directly into an omniscience if you wanted to. That's scary. Why aren't more people doing this? Move aside, mutate. What are all these mutate creatures doing on this page? This this polymorph thing sounds way more savage. I, I love and hate this. That's kind of amazing. I mean, I don't know what you have against the uh, polywog symbiote, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Like there, there's a lot of potential to just flip into big, crazy, silly things. Big, crazy, silly things. I'm I'm all about that. I'm I'm super, yeah, okay. That's, I'm just okay. all about any mutate commander that doesn't make me have to understand mutate. There, that, that too, there you go. <laughs> very fair, very, very fair. I, I, I can also get behind that. Um, we'll round it out with one final example here, and this one is probably a bit more controversial, but it is a personal experience that I had when I built this commander. Um, so let's talk about Anawan the Ruin Thief. So that is the four mana vampire rogue, a two four. He gives your other rogues plus one plus one, and he's got this very interesting, tricky, weird ability. Whenever one or more rogues uh, you control deal combat damage to a player, that player mills a card for each one damage that was dealt to them. And if the player mills at least one creature card this way, you draw a card. So the general strategy here here is to use your rogues and you can hit your opponents. You might get to draw some extra cards as Anawan helps you fill their graveyards. And there are some rogues that care about your opponents having a couple more extra cards in their graveyard. For example, Soaring Thought Thief is a really popular option for Anawan, which gives your rogues um, an additional plus one plus oh if your uh, opponents have enough cards in their graveyard. And that is nice because Anawan helps facilitate the growing of their graveyards by milling them a little bit. But when I was playing this deck, I had a lot of a lot of struggles with the ways that I see a lot of the data is being influenced by, again, this commander's precon, because cards like Consuming Aberration showed up in that precon, for instance, which gets bigger for all of the cards in your opponent's graveyard, which seems absolutely perfect for what Anawan is doing. Like, awesome stuff. Or there's a lot of other effects that might steal things out of their graveyards. Whisper Steel Dagger was another example from that precon. Um, here's the thing for me though, that is not the strategy that I ended up liking very much for Anawan because filling opponents' graveyards, I mean, heck, Matt, your challenge to stats earlier was literally about how cool a different spell option might be to fill your graveyard instead, because then you could use it with a physics's mastery or something, you know, right? Like you yourself have admitted that having a big graveyard, like opponents filling your graveyard, even for you can be really good for you actually. Yeah. It seems like you're just helping somebody beat you. So if <laughs> if you're going to let them do that, then I guess you should. You just allow them. Yeah, like, yes, please continue. Well, so so that's just it. That's why it kind of eventually becomes awkward for Anawan specifically, because another popular card that Anawan players play is something like Ashiok Dream Render, which can mill stuff, but also, crucially, exiles every opponent's graveyard. And the reason that a card like that shows up so popularly for Anawan, and there are a bunch of other graveyard control and graveyard exile effects on Anawan's page too, is precisely because when you're filling your opponent's graveyard, if you're playing against a Moldrotha deck or a Marin deck, or even someone playing a Mizzix's Mastery, then you are giving them fuel. So you have to be able to police their graveyard in some type of maybe effective way. And so then the entire deck became a bit difficult for me to juggle rogue, tribal, and milling and maybe reanimation from enemy players and I'm actually milling them out and I still have to do all of this stuff while also juggling the usual areas of card draw and ramp and removal effects. It all just became too much and I felt like I couldn't cram all of it into a cohesive deck. 
And so what I decided instead to try out, and which I had a lot more fun with with Anawan, was just focusing on the fact that so many of these rogues are really hard to block, like Invisible Stalker. Like, they're just unblockable things. So what I did instead was focus on what they call the Saboteur strategy, where if you put a Quietus Spike onto one of your creatures, for example, Quietus Spike is a fun equipment that when the creature deals damage to an opponent, they lose half their life rounded up, which is really awesome. And so I focused on just a saboteur strategy of getting cool effects whenever my unblockable creatures poked through an opponent's defenses. And I thought that was a whole lot more fun, and it still had a great sense of rogue flavor. So a bunch of fun equipment like that were a lot more rewarding to me than trying to police and fill the graveyards at the same time. I mean, that seems like a perfect situation to run a Vorpal Sword, if you ask me. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Dana, that's a really good idea. Any excuse to put Vorpal Sword in a deck, I am all over. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this also lends itself to, you know, given the unblockable strategy, there's also, if you wanted to go in and infect route, this is a way to probably go infect if you wanted to go that 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 as well. There's plenty of things in, in black and blue that you can use to give those unblockable rogues infect or poisonous or whatever too. So, um, yeah, there, there are a lot of other outside-the-box strategies you can do with this for sure. In fact, Dana, when I introduced you in this podcast, <laughs> I said that you weren't Phyrexian, you were completely fine. Was I accidentally prophesizing with my with my joke there? You may, you may have been. You may have, um, yeah, led me a little bit down the dark path. <laughs> I, I think this, uh, this joke has become complete, you might say. <laughs> I love it. And Matt, that joke really, uh, to call back to your dad jokes, that, jo- that joke really uh, sizzles. Oh yes, uh, it, it cut through to the to the funny bone. <laughs> cool. It's just falling like, off the bone. But yeah, th- this is just a couple of other uh, you know fun strategies that we thought could be interesting directions to take these commanders. But there's also literally infinite directions that you can take these commanders. Like if you wanted to build Anawan to actually be vampire tribal instead, that is totally a thing that you can still do. And there are a lot of clever ways that you can make any of these things happen. So this is a fun exercise that I think is totally worthwhile to go through to see what directions you might want to take your decks. And I mean, again, Matt, and I love you for bringing it up. The advanced filters, folks. Advanced totally filters. We got to use the advanced filters. I, 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 we we don't beat that drum enough. And we probably should, uh, but man, <laughs> it's uh, advanced filters is probably <laughs> the most helpful tool in the entire site, including just all the information at face value. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. It is so helpful to tailor the recommendations to what you specifically want to see. So folks, definitely use those. And listeners, we would also really love to hear from you. Like, what is an unconventional way that you have built some of your decks? What is a direction that you usually see for a commander's page that you resisted and wanted to take a completely different path? We'd really love to hear from you about the different strats that you like to challenge as well, because this is just a really fun way to go about deck building and expand your creativity a little bit. But with that, fellas, how about we call this episode to a close. If our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where is it that they can find us all? Matt? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings, we are streaming over at twitch.tv slash EDH Retcast. Uh, we have guests on every single week, and they're always super fun to play with. So make sure you tune in for all of that fun times as well. And Dana. You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can hear me on my other podcast, CMDR Central. I am writing articles for EDH Rec and Commander's Herald. And you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDH Retcast.
And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at EDHRecast on Facebook and Twitter as well. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRecast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Josh LeQuay and the whole team at the Command Zone for handling the post-production work on the podcast. And we want to thank our sponsors, TCG Player and CardKingdom.com. And you can visit Altersleeves.com slash EDHRecast for cool, custom EDHREC sleeves. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then... Remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs>